Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Hustle. It's John Lamoureux. All right. We are concluding our five-week stretch of great British bands that were primarily huge in the 80s. And this week, we are hearing from Chris Joyce, who was the original drummer for Simply Red. Now, I tell this to him in here. I will admit I was not a Simply Red fan when they were at their peak in the States anyway in the 80s. I have come around over the last few years, and now I love them. And my favorite part of their career is especially the first three albums that Chris played on. He was a founding member there from the beginning, and unfortunately, he left the band or was kicked out of the band or whatever you want to say it just as they were going in to record Stars, their fourth album, which didn't do much in the States, but became one of the highest, biggest selling albums in UK chart history. That can't have been easy. I tracked him down specifically because I love the music he made with them, and I thought he in particular would have a really interesting story, and it turns out he does. So ever since then, he's been in and out of music, um, sometimes as a professional musician, sometimes not. Today, he's just drumming. He seems very happy and content, which is wonderful. That's what I love for these people. He's had some bad business breaks, but he's bounced back from those as well. That's a really interesting story. Uh, speaking of interesting stories, he, you know how I ask people a lot what their favorite you know, memory is or whatever? The story he tells at the end of this, one of the best we've ever heard. So I hope that you find this interesting and that it rekindles an interest in Simply Red and that you come to appreciate what, a, what an integral part of that early sound of theirs that Chris uh, provided and brought to the table. Anyway, he's a really great guy. He called me from his home outside of Manchester, England. I have to tell you why I reached out to you specifically. Okay. A couple months ago, I was watching the Simply Red Stars episode of Classic Albums. Right. Uh, it re-aired here in the States uh, a couple of months ago. I think I emailed you probably about the next day. And uh, I was watching you on there and I thought, ooh, this guy has a story. I want to hear this guy's story because that can't have been easy for the leader of the band you're in to decide to sort of change styles or change directions or whatever. And you be affected by that just as they are as they're about to release the one of the biggest albums of all time. And so uh, we don't have to start there necessarily. We can build up to that. We don't have to go right for the jugular. But I want you to know that that's why I thought, I bet Chris has a really fascinating story. I would love to hear from him. Okay. Well, I'm, I'm probably quite happy to start there, John. Because oh, really? Okay, tell us. Well, let's get it out of the way. It's one of those okay. sorts of okay. things. 
Yeah. And, and it's interesting you're saying about the leader, i.e. Mick, uh, changing style or something like that. But there was actually no change in style whatsoever. Mm. There was a change in lineup, and there was a change. In, there was a change in contracts for the band, because before the album, the musicians in the band, it was actually a band, and everybody yeah. was signed, everybody was signed to the record label. Yeah, that was going to be my question. If this, if he was put himself above everyone, or if it was more of a democracy and well, a true band. Uh, well. I would say it was never a democracy, but uh, a kind of a level playing field in as far as when we did the recordings, it was done as a band. Hmm. But, you know, Mick was always the diamond in the ring, if you like. Mm -hmm. What happened after the New Flame tour, and it came to rehearsing for stars and preparing for that and doing demos, we were kind of told that Tony was being released from the band. That was Tony Bowers, the bass player. Mm -hmm and wasn't going to be continuing. And there was personal issues going on between him and Mick, I think, at that time. Mm. And what happened, basically, between Mick and the management company, who we were all signed under this same management company, basically they went to the record label, renegotiated the contract. So basically there was only Mick on it. Mm. And then announced it to the rest of the band. Mm. And band were told over a, a meal in the Chinese restaurant that uh, without Mick there this is that basically we're, we weren't on the record label anymore we were not members of the band and we were going to be basically session musicians Ooh. now let me ask you a question about that is that Go something on. management pitched to Mick were Mick and management in collusion to come up to go that direction um, do you think Mick had any knowledge of this? Where do, what, what, how do you think this came about? I think Mick had total knowledge of it. Hmm. And I think it was between Mick and the management, basically. And perhaps, I think, perhaps to some extent, and I, I've, I've no idea here, John, whether this is true or not, but Stuart Levine, who was the producer of Picture Book and the third, the first, that which was the first album, and New Flame, <laughs> which was the third album, and was going to be the producer of the fourth album. I think maybe Stuart had some kind of influence or sway over mm -hmm. Mick in his thinking about this. Anyway, I don't think the record company were overly happy about it themselves because I talked to one of the guy that was the kind of the head of the company at the time, a guy called Max Hall. And uh, I think the record company were quite taken aback by it, but obviously the it wasn't their decision either. They mm. just went along with what Mick and his, mani his management, I say his management because it felt at the time we'd been kind of deserted as far as management went. Yeah. So the band, you as a band didn't have one manager. Did you guys all each have individuals and he had his own and his one, talked him into this? It was the one manager. It was. It was the one management company. So you're so the band's manager basically makes this decision with Mick with Mick to leave you guys sort of out in the cold. Correct. That's so strange. They're they're incentivized in all of your success. Why would they have done that? Did they just think they could make more have more success with Mick leading a bunch of session musicians than they would as a band as a whole? Well, to be honest, I don't know John whether it was to keep him happy or mm whatever mm. this decision or this thought came from in the first place. But basically, Mick got the whole of the cake. You know, he could 
bring people in and out. It's like a cold corporate basis then, really. Mm-hmm. There's no, there's no, nobody has any kind of say in anything that goes on. Yeah. Oh, man. So well, that, that's what happened in the lead up to that album. Mm. And then uh, from there, like I said, Tony was let go. Then we did the demos for this album, which we made the demos in a small little studio in Manchester. And then I think it was like early 1991, I think we went to Paris to do the re- start the recording of the album. And when I arrived in Paris, there was a, a guy there who was basically like, had been brought in to do drum programming. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I didn't know anything about this until I arrived. And I had my drum kit set up and was ready to kind of go. And sat in a studio for three weeks, not playing the drums and being told the sound, the drum sound in the room wasn't very good. Mm-hmm. And this guy was doing the drum programming. And it was all starting to get a bit very, well, a bit, a bit strange. And then we came back to England where we did a break between the recordings. Not that I'd done any work. I sat around for three weeks. Right. And right. then one evening I was at home and I got a call from Mick saying that I was out of the band. Oh. Did that come as a shock? Were you too friendly? Uh, or were you, um, by that point, maybe relationships had been a little strained? I think um, it- it was becoming strained because it was the whole thing with getting rid of Tony at the time yeah. was, you know, Tony was, we, we were very much a band and we did this, the, the, we had the kind of like the bullshit from the management about this, this family kind of thing for, you know, we had for five or six years. Yeah. And then it, it, it just became a lot colder and more sort of corporate from what I could see. So yes, it was it was a shock because Mick and I had been very good friends. Uh, we'd, we'd done a lot together between the two of us, and sure. we had a good relationship. And so I was taken aback completely. Yeah. So in the when you watch the classic albums episode, it makes it sound more like the spin on this is Mick is hearing something from drum programming. I'm blanking on the guy's name, the Asian gentleman. Um, blanking, uh, he, he's hearing something through drum programming that's inspiring him to sort of take the sound in a different direction. But, well, well, to just interrupt you there, basically, sure. the drum programmer programmed what I'd done in the demos. Oh, <laughs> so there was not, he didn't bring anything new to the show, particularly, you know, yeah, uh, uh, it was just programmed drums. I mean, then this was a time when. We'd gone through drum machines. It was a lot of drummers were kind of losing their jobs at this time, I think, as well. Yeah. And the industry yeah. was changing. But it was when programming was becoming a lot more sophisticated. And this guy, to be fair, was a really good programmer. There was no doubt about it. Mm-hmm. But he programmed the, the rhythms I did in the demos. There was nothing he brought to the, to, to, to the party that was, you know... Uh, any different from what I was doing particularly. Yeah. Maybe tighter, maybe it could get different sounds or whatever it might have been, but uh, it wasn't like it had gone in a different direction as far as the style had gone. Yeah. Plus, you know, it, I'm thinking about this now, 
Mick's got a tour, and when you go out on tour, he's not gonna he's gonna take a drummer with him. I've never seen Simply Red in concert, unfortunately. But you, why why not you still be that guy? I mean, if he wants to tinker in the studio with something different, that's one thing. But he still is going to need a rhythm section out on the road. No, so yeah, I, you know, yeah. Well, I think. Uh... Because obviously the, the crew that were with the band were with us for many years, and what they said to me afterwards, it was just like, and there's no disparagement to this guy. Obviously, it was a great programmer, but they said on stage it was just light what he was doing. It didn't, you know, it didn't kind of hit the mark as far as they were concerned from what they knew when I was there. So that's just you know me boosting my own kind of ego in saying something like that, but. Sure, that, you deserve that's it. The feedback I got from the crew at the time as well, you know, and when I wasn't there, mm. and yeah, that could have been the arrangement, John, in 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 reality. But uh, I think it was just, I don't know. It seemed to be, it was like cutting people off one by one. Mm-hmm. Uh, it happened with everybody, from Tony to me to Fritz, whoever it might have been, Tim, you know, mm. eventually. <laughs> Anybody that knew Mick and knew him well or knew anything about his past or anything or where the dead bodies were kind of got uh, removed. Huh. Now, I, um, boy, there's a different, there's a bunch of different directions I want to go from here, but I'll, I'll ask you this. <laughs> I have, it seems to me that Mick has a bit of a reputation as being somewhat of a divisive figure. And I've even heard him talk about this. Um, right. I've, and in fact, two of the things that I've heard him say is that number one, people, and I'm not disparaging anything he's saying, his own words are number one, people are in general sort of bigoted against ginger haired people. And he thinks that feeds into some of it. And then secondly, and maybe these are sort of attached, he's been, been very vocal about how many like women he's had sex with and, you know, girlfriends he's had and yeah, yeah, the... Yeah the high life that he's led and that people are off put uh, it's off putting listening to a guy who they're already bigoted against for having red hair, have this incredible sex life with supermodels and stuff like that. I don't know if any of that's true or not, but in your experience, what's the best thing and the worst thing about working with Mick Hucknall? And Uh, why do you think he is a divisive figure to a lot of people? I don't think there was ever any kind of, you know, red hair racism going on. I think See, he said that before. That's interesting. I, I, okay. I know. I, I've, I've heard that. And it's just like, you know, <laughs> I, I personally think give us a break. And it's not, you know. Yeah. And, you know, as far as him screwing however many women and wh- whenever, then fine you know when you're on the road he wasn't in a relationship if that's what he wants to do and that's what inspired him and you know gave him some songwriting material then absolutely fine your question you know i mean mick is a really really talented singer uh mick really knows his music inside out you know he, he before the band he was a dj he uh, he learned a lot about different styles of music and, you know, almost had a, like an encyclopedic memory of things. He could imitate great singers. He could do all sorts with, you know, like imitations of Aretha Franklin or James Brown or Marvin Gaye or people like that. 
he's a really talented guy, but it's like there's just the divisiveness in his character. I don't know because my take on it is within the band, we never had arguments or anything like that. Mick would get somebody else to do his dirty work. <laughs> it was never him. And I think, you know, in the history of the band, I was the only person that Mick ever sat personally because the management didn't want to do it. Interesting. It, it's he divisive in that he'll be insidious in the way he will divide people. He'll get somebody else to do it for him. Does he just have like a massive ego? Is that part of this? I guess, you know, any front man of a successful band has to have You've got a massive to have- ego to some degree. You've got to have that massive ego. Yeah. And, you know, if you're going to stand in front of 100, 1,000, 10,000, 100,000 people, you've got to have some balls to do that. Mm-hmm. And you've got to have some chutzpah to do that. So, you know, and Mick did have that. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so, yeah. Well, all right. So um, going back then, when when this happens to you, the thing, if you've l- heard me talk to other people on here, I'm always really fascinated with the transitions in people's lives. And we haven't gotten to the first transition, which we will in a minute, of you going from, you know, relative obscurity into this gigantic new band. But yeah. the, the, when you when it ends and you wake up that next morning and you're unemployed, basically – how do you feel? Are you thinking, I was just in a gigantic band. I've got a million options at this point. This is one thing and it's not that big of a deal. Or are you thinking, Are you? is there fear? Like, I, I, this is scary. I had a solid thing going and now I don't and I don't know what to do. I think, to be honest, it's scary because my take in it is most musicians are pretty insecure people. Hmm. You know, it's an insecure world. It's an insecure business. Uh, I think, you know, a lot of people these days have kind of caught up with the insecurities that musicians have in the corporate world or whatever world it might be, whether you're in banking or anything, because when you might have had a safe job in a bank at one time, nothing's safe anymore. So it's like people, the the mass majority have been able to catch up with the insecurity of musicians these days. Mm -hmm. For me, it felt like I had the rug pulled from under my feet. I was devastated at the time. because. Uh, just before that, my father had died, and Ooh. just after that, my mother died, and this oh. all happened within uh, a twenty-month period. Oh, so it was oh. a time of a lot going on for me personally, emotionally. Yeah, I bet. And then how? I, I hate to believe me. We're going to focus on the positive here in a second, but I'm, I'm happy to talk about this. I'm thinking of this as like some therapy session that we might. <laughs> I'm so lying down here. Good. I hope it's positive. I mean for it to. We're on. We're going to be. We're going to be focused on the positive here in a second. But tell me that. I mean, maybe we can talk about my life as a drummer, not just bloody simply red. We will. We're going to get to all of it. But when when you see stars take off, what's that? Um, Excuse me. How much time have you got? <laughs> we got lots of time, actually. Um, cool. I just talked to Rupert Hine for three hours, so we we can wow. do whatever we need to do here. Um, okay. But yeah, when you when you see stars then take off into the stratosphere, how are you feeling? How are you coping with that? It's I lived in England in the summer of '91. I remember how omnipresent that album was. How were you feeling? I was. 
like I said, I was devastated at the time. It was like, you know, it was, you couldn't avoid it, but I was trying to make a new life for myself then. I was trying to move on. And so I ended up buying a property in the centre of Manchester and doing like a redevelopment and making some offices there and putting a recording studio into the place. Nice. Uh, and I started uh, a record label doing kind of dance music because that was, if you were in England at that time, you know that dance music, club music was massive at the time. Unlimited, the Shaman. Those were some of the uh, the really that, technotronic. That, that, that was all the really big stuff right there. And the commercial side. I'm yeah. talking more. Well, true. The club kind of real club music, not just chart uh, dance music, which is what you kind of quoted. Yeah. Uh, so I'm starting just working with younger people again. At at the time, I was I couldn't play the drums. My confidence had gone completely. Mm. Uh, I stopped probably trying, playing the drums for about 10 years, which I actually regret now. Mm. I should never have done that. Was it one of those things? Was it sort of, did it bring on some PTSD to even look at the drum set in the corner of the room? Or were you just sort of over it? Why? I think at the time, it the, the, the business of music killed my love of the music business. Uh, and my love of music. I mean, no, I, I didn't kill my love of music, but it killed my me wanting to make music personally. Mm. I was happy to kind of nurture and help other younger people with stuff, but for myself at the time, it was very hard for me to go back to it. Like I say, my confidence was shot with it. Yeah. Something I'm I'm always curious about is that why when members of bands that are really well known why they don't when they leave just go join another big band maybe that's too simple but like say you're the vice president of you know disney and you get sacked or you leave you could probably go if there's an opening become the vice president of nbc or the bbc you know what i mean people people in regular world they sort of 
hip hop they hip hop back and forth into an industry where they've become successful, but that doesn't seem to happen with musicians very often. It's well, sort of you, almost like a one and done thing. I wish you'd been my manager at the time. That would ah. be <laughs> I'd do that. I'd be happy to do that. Yeah, I just I'm, how that must you know because you've proven at this time this is a, there's very much I think, uh, and it's particularly in London. There's a session scene. But if you're not part of that session scene, then it's very hard to break into it. And, you know, for like you're saying, just getting into another band, lots of those bands at that time, they were units anyway. You know, it's like when Simply Red started out. It was it was a five, six-piece unit. You know, you, people didn't just come from some other band that had been successful into that. Yeah, They came from somewhere, you know. So I didn't get the – and I didn't have management then. Uh, I wasn't being offered management. I wasn't looking for management particularly. So that just wasn't a path that kind of was there for me. Hmm. Well, let's uh, let's go back to the beginning for a minute and then let's jump into kind of what you've been doing ever since now that we've gotten the rough stuff out of the way. Um, from what I understand, I mean, you came up, you're, by the way, for anyone listening, your website is very detailed on the biography section. It just lists everything you've ever really worked on. It's great. And I was going back, obviously, you know, not growing up in the UK. A lot of that was new to me. But Tony Wilson, who most a lot of people, music lovers know from the factory, 24 hour party people, New Order, all that kind of stuff, was seems to have been a very instrumental figure. And you having any kind of giving you the bona fides to launch into a professional music career. What sort of part did he play? Well, Tony was a very good friend of mine, and I was one of the founder members of Durutti Column, mm -hmm. which was the first band on Factory Records. been in uh, sort of 77 78 i was in a, a punk band called fast breeder and tony wilson was a, a it was like a news anchor on the local television station and he was very much into his music big time and he, ca he came to see this band and really liked what we were doing anyway like what this band fast breeder right me and there was a guitarist called Dave Robotham, who uh, the band, the, the, the other guitarist and the bass player sacked us. And 
me and Dave then went on to start Dorothy Column with the help of Tony Wilson and yeah. his business partner, a guy called Alan Erasmus. Uh, and that's where I met Tony Bowers, who then became the bass player with Simply Red. Got it. it but much later on. And mm-hmm. uh, uh, there was also Vinnie Riley, the guitarist, who eventually became just a rutty column pretty much on his own, mm-hmm. with a drummer down the line called Bruce Mitchell, who's a very good friend of mine. And we had a singer called Phil. And Tony was kind of just, he was such a, an extravagant character like nobody had mm-hmm. ever met before. You know, he was like Cambridge educated, but he was, a, he was a guy from Salford, Manchester. And he was the, he would, would smoke dope together all the time. He was, <laughs> the first time I ever took acid was with Tony Wilson. Oh, nice. And there's a very funny story with that. Oh, because, tell us. <laughs> well, I ended up. <clears throat> I, don't, I don't know how much you can broadcast of this, but uh, I ended up. Uh, I used to know this guy who was from San Francisco, who was a, a gay magician, uh, who used to bring acid in from San Francisco. Mm-hmm. And I, Tony, was like trying to get some acid, and I said, "Okay, I can get some from this guy that I know." And I ended up getting like fifty tabs of acid and. <laughs> getting them for Tony and Alan. And I was living in this little, like, uh, it was a bedsit, basically, you know, a one-room apartment in Manchester with a girlfriend. And Tony came round. And this is actually, this night, the, the girlfriend that I had at the time, she, she, her father used to, had worked in Thailand. And she'd been over there with him and came back with these records from Thailand, like, Led Zeppelin records and Deep Purple records that had been bootlegged. Mm-hmm. And they were wrapped in these cellophane, they weren't done in cardboard sleeves. They were like a cellophane sleeve because it was a bootleg. Mm-hmm. Like, a, you know, so it was a photo of the, the, the original sleeve, but wrapped in cellophane. Anyway, Tony, when we took the acid this night, saw these records in the collection that was in the house, in the, the apartment and said, this is a great idea. And this is, so the first uh, records come out on Factory Records, use this cellophane sleeve idea. Oh, okay. But nice. Just, the funny part of the story was, basically, we, we, <laughs> we, we were up all night, we went to, Tony drove us to Manchester Airport, and we drove around the airport, we drove around the car park at high <laughs> speed, up and down, you know, like many floors of, the car park, and then we went out to a place called Alderley Edge in Manchester, which is like it's got a, a mythical kind of uh, people go there at full moon and things like that. It's like witches sort of meeting place. Mm. And we were kind of coming down in the morning and listening to the uh, the dawn chorus, and Tony was telling me about Pink Floyd albums and Pipers mm. of the Gates of Dawn. And then Tony drove us back into Manchester. And this was like, you know, eight or nine o'clock in the morning. And he says, I was like, what are you going to do now, Tony? He was dropping us off at the house. And he said, oh, I've got to go and play a charity football match now. Uh, I got stopped by the police the other day. And they said, if I play this charity football match, for spe- he got stopped for speeding. Mm. He, sa- he said, if, they, if I play this charity football match, they'll let me go. <laughs> so, Basically, and off yeah. there, 
to play this charity football match. But Tony was such a, a, a wonderful character, you know. Yeah. He was larger than life. And later on, after the whole Simply Red thing, when I did this building in Manchester, I had offices in it which I rented out. And one of the off, two of the offices I rented out, one was to Tony for Factory Records. And one was Tony had a... a did you ever hear of a thing called In the City? Like the jam song, or no? What it's, is it? Uh, it's like uh, it's like South by Southwest. Oh, right, right, right. Yeah, yes, I have heard of this. Right. Well, yeah. Tony was the kind of one of the people that he, he started that. So they had an office in my building as well. So, oh. and then Tony, we bought parts of this other building just down the street from there, and both developed a couple of apartments. So we were neighbors basically. Mm. Have you always, because, uh, you know, we talk about the money side of all this. It's, have you always sort of had a side business in um, real estate or commercial real estate? I mean, if that's what you invested a lot of your money in after Simply Red, people make a lot of money in commercial real estate. Has that well, been I, good for you? I did okay for a while. And mm. then I opened up uh, a small chain of delicatessens in Manchester. And off the back of the, some of the, this, this property that I had, I used some of the collateral from that, the equity from that, to fund uh, this delicatessen business. And then after quite a few years, found mm. out I had a really bent accountant mm. and that he'd fucked everything up big oh, time. No, no. And I lost a fortune and I, wow. I had to had to get myself out of the shit. I had to sell this building as well. So uh, oh, it was nearly. I, I managed to hang on to my house, but I lost everything else. Oh, basically. oh, that's tough. It was shit. Yes. Um, how have you? I mean, I assume you can pay your bills now. How have you? What have you built back up? I mean, I know you've been in and out of music off and on. Um, that seems to be a pattern. I wanted to kind of dive into that a little deeper uh, here eventually. But how what how do you make a living today? What do you do? Well, these days I teach drums. You do? Okay, I thought that might be it. Okay. I do private tutoring. Uh, and I've got a couple of rooms, a couple of studios near where I live now because I live in about 40 minutes outside of Manchester in the countryside. Mm. And there's a very nice little town near me called Hebden Bridge, which is kind of, it used to be kind of a hippie town in the mm. 70s and early 80s. And then it became the lesbian capital of the oh. north of England. Awesome. <laughs> it's kind of now a kind of a bit of a mixed, you know, a lot of people from the media live around there because it's between Manchester and Leeds and it's a nice place so it's an easy commute on a train either way. Okay. So I've got a studio in the middle of Hebden Bridge where I teach drums from and then I've got one just outside of Hebden Bridge. Okay. So now, I, that's where, you know, I generate uh, cash these days. Got it. Okay. Well, that's got to be good. I would imagine people would want to take drum lessons from the drummer of Simply Red. I mean, that yeah. would be a pretty sweet deal. Nice. Yeah, the, um, the best compliment I had was my grandma really used to like your group. <laughs> I guess that's kind of true now. Oh, no. 
Oh, that's funny. Now, so let me, I mean, this is a point blank question. Could you live off simply red money? Because I know you didn't write a lot of those songs, but because the band has remained successful off and on, uh, more or less, I'm guessing there's greatest hits packages and all that kind of stuff that you can still benefit from. I still get royalties, but not. it wouldn't be enough to live on. It helps okay. uh, my cash flow, shall Got we it. say. Okay. But, uh, and, you know, I haven't made a fortune out of money. I, I, on that business deal that I was telling you about, I lost a lot of money. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> if I hadn't lost the money, a lot of the money with that, I'd have been, you know, n- not rich but comfortable. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, that fucked everything up big time. Yeah. And now, you know... And, and I mean, I don't want to retire. I want to keep working anyway. So that's why I keep, you know, and again, like I said, I stopped playing for quite a number of years and then got reignited with uh, music and playing drums probably about uh, 10, 12 years ago. Good. Okay, good. That's good. Someone like you should be out there. You know, we need Chris Joyce out there. I that's agree. great. I agree. Good. Okay. Um, now I, I jump around, I've been jumping around. I don't mean to, but going back to the beginning, something I'm really curious about because Mick is, um, and you and Mick share the same experience. He supposedly was at that famous sex pistol show where, you know, guys from the Buzzcocks and all these other bands were there that went on to form big bands. And, um, I find it interesting that people who, uh, came up basically through the punk ranks would then become the sort of sophistipop band that Simply Red became. They couldn't be more opposite. What is this a is this a situation where you're just happy to have a job and I just want to play music and this band's going somewhere. Let's play music together. I don't care what it is. Or is, are your tastes becoming more sophisticated as you get older? Is there any kind of jump mentally or emotionally in your mind going from the guy who was in Fast Breeder to the guy who was in Simply Red? No, because the guy who was in Fast Breeder and the same with Mick and people around that era was, you know, we all grew up with listening to the Beatles and the Rolling Stones and the Kinks and all of that sort of thing. And what happened is when we were like in our sort of mid to late teens, early 20s, this whole punk thing came along. And it was like, it was kind of like, it was a new energy. And it was like, you know, fuck all these 20 minute guitar solos and, you know, 10 minute drum solos and all of this kind of indulgent stuff in music. So I don't think there was a a conflict there with, it was more the ethos of just, Mm you know, a change in something. And then off the back of that, after the punk thing, they kind of moved into new wave. We got bands like then Television, Talking Heads, you know. We'd been listening, we were listening to reggae, we were listening to what at that time wasn't even called world music. It was just music from Africa or India or, you know, Native American Indians. We were listening to these different things, Captain Beefheart, you know, blues stuff. So... And, you know, Marvin Gaye, the whole soul thing. We grew up with Motown in the 60s and early 70s when we were in England. So, you know, as you did in America, but probably more so here even. And, uh, you know, there's a genre called Northern Soul, which was massive in the north of England, uh, which was like a lot of 
black American artist that didn't kind of make it in America, but the records got picked up on in England. Mm. Yeah. So there wasn't, uh, you know, it wasn't a conflict of, you know, changing suddenly. Okay. I'm, I'm just doing it for the money and doing this. It was all a part of, it was part of our makeup. It was just, you know, it was a big jigsaw. Yeah. I am still to this. I love that sort of sophisticated pop sound that was coming out of the UK in the mid to late eighties. All those bands like swing out sister and curiosity killed the cat and breathe and cane gang and all those wet, wet, wet. And, uh, they all sort of that sound became so prevalent all at once in around 1987. I know you guys came first. In fact, I've always wondered if, they were all sort of influenced by the success they were seeing you have, and that's what opened up well, that genre. Say that because a lot of those bands, in because when Simply Red were getting bigger, we had bands like Wet 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 and Hue and Cry and mm-hmm. Terence Trent Darby supporting us on mm-hmm. tours, uh, Sarah Jane Morris, people like that. So it was, you know, it's it's as record companies try to manufacture something that's been successful with something else you know right let's get this lot going down that route yeah the record companies try to manufacture things all the time don't they sure they sure do um okay let's talk about the formation then of simply red let's talk about the good stuff and the music because um you know tony wilson comes along to you and he basically sort of says i think you might like working with mick mick has been in the frantic elevators in fact it was nothing to do with Tony Wilson. Simply oh, I thought... Ever, nothing ever oh, to do with Tony I thought he, like, brokered the relationship, but then didn't manage or anything, but just sort of no. made a recommendation. There was ah. a guy called Elliot Rashman, because after Dorothy Column, when that band split up, Tony Bowers, who was then the later bass player with Simply Red, and, and this guy Dave Robotham, and another guy called Bob Hardin... We formed a band called the Mothmen, and Elliot was the manager. Mothman ended up doing uh, a couple of albums and then that just fell apart basically as mm-hmm. things do because it wasn't breakthrough in any way and I went off and started doing session work and I worked then with Pete Wiley doing uh, in I did a lot of session work in Liverpool with Holly Johnson before mm-hmm. he Frankie goes to Hollywood 
I worked with a woman called Jane Casey who did Pink Military and then I worked with Pete Wiley and that was just when he had a big hit with Story of the Blues. I did other bits of work in Manchester and then I think it was sort of late 1984 Elliot came to me and said look I'm I'm working with this guy Mick and uh, we might basically I think the record company had said to him we're interested in Mick but he needs a new drummer and bass player Hmm. and in uh, January 85 me and Tony Bowers were drafted in as the the drum and bass rhythm section and Tony and I had done a lot of work together before and we you know had a a rapport straight away and that's when that's when the band got signed but that was down to a guy called Elliot Rashman got it okay I'm sorry I missed a lot of steps there um you certainly did I did (laughs) I'm sorry no now you know now I know. Well, I've been reading, I've been studying you all week, and now I, I kind of failed the test, didn't I? Um, but, I, so, when, the thing I wanted to ask about is when Mick comes to you guys, he's been in this band, and he brings, you can go online, anyone who's never done this, and on YouTube, you can hear one of the original versions of Holding Back the Years, bef- when it was more of like a punky song, before it right. became the sophisticated thing you guys worked on. Hey gang, let me break in here for a minute. Plus, I want to give you more time to hear this early version of Holding Back the Years. It's fascinating. It's on YouTube. Go check it out. Uh, So first and foremost, I thought I'd fill you in on some of the rejections or things that haven't worked out lately. Um, I tried to get Midnight Oil on here. Um, I've tried a couple of times. I never heard back. This time I actually did hear back and was told they are not doing any interviews. Um, Actually, uh, I first went to Peter Garrett and was told he's not doing any interviews. And I said, I assume that also relates to everyone else in the band because I'd happily talk to anybody, especially the drummer, Rob Hurst. I think he's amazing. Um, And the person said yes. So no Midnight Oil for a while. I get some requests for them. I love them. They're one of my favorite bands ever, but I have not been able to make that happen. Another weird one happened <laughs> happened recently. So um, the Talking Heads. I love the Talking Heads, and I think I'm Facebook friends maybe with Chris France. 
So I sent him a message on there recently and uh, I said, hey, would you be willing to come on my podcast? And and I want to specifically say, you know, we don't have to get into the into the dirt. We can talk about Tom Tom Club. We can talk about everything else. And he wrote back and he said, uh, I'd be I'd love to do this with you after I finish after I uh, release my book. I said, oh, when's that going to be? He said, spring of 2020. So we won't be hearing from Chris France for another couple of years. Um, I did think that was sweet of him to reply. I thought it was funny that he was basically giving me a heads up that in two years, maybe we can talk. And in case you're wondering, I confirmed, yes, that also uh, that also goes for Tina Weymouth as well. So no Chris or Tina for two years. Uh, then this one really makes me sad and I'm really, I'm trying to fix it. Maybe I shouldn't even mention this, but I'm going to mention it anyway. So I've been trying to work out an interview with Karen Paris of the Innocence Mission. I love them. And, um, they put out a new album recently and I've been talking with their publicist and he tells me that she will only talk as long as we don't discuss anything prior to the year 2000. Now that is not an ideal restriction for me, because um, I like to cover the whole, you know, the whole career and you know those those early days, how to feel when it first started to happen. Plus, some of their best known material, at least off the Empire Records soundtrack, is from like '94 or '5. And so I said, well, I reluctantly agreed to follow that parameter, and then I emailed the guy and said, uh, his name's Howard, by the way, very nice publicist. I said, hey, is, would it be okay if, if I don't talk about them, but am I, am I allowed to at least play a song? Because, you know, we always intro these episodes with people, with bands, probably, you know, most uh, commonly known song. And I thought, well, maybe I play Bright as Yellow for the intro or something like that, just so people, oh, it's these guys. And he wrote back later and he said, under the circumstances, Karen has changed her mind and, to, and doesn't want to do the interview. And I said, well, what are, under what circumstances, what happened? And he said, it was your decision to play their old music that uh, changed her mind. And I said, I'm not even, I was not saying I'm going to play the music. I was asking if I could. I'm just trying to understand what the parameters are. So I asked him to ask her to reconsider. It may still happen. I don't know. He said, look, if they change their mind, I'll let you know. So I, it would be great to get the, her, especially, I'm always trying to get more women on here, from a band that I love. And we will talk about the more recent material if that's what they wish. Um, but I don't. I may have ruined it. And I didn't even mean to, you know? I'm so bummed about that. So in brighter news, let's, talk, let's read a couple reviews. We've gotten two fairly new iTunes reviews. Thank you, guys. We've gotten a bunch of Facebook reviews which are also nice. The iTunes ones, I think, carry more weight. I'm not sure. But anyway, uh, this one's from Wondermutt, 1971. Can't stop listening. Five stars. The Hustle has become my favorite podcasts. Uh, John's interviews of guests are entertaining and insightful. He gets artists to open up and tell the stories you haven't heard before. Any fan of 80s music should subscribe. Excellent. Thank you, Wondermutt. Uh, this one is from CK. Parentheses D. Johnson. I think that might be Derek Johnson, who's a fairly new listener of ours. Hi, Derek. Uh, if I'm wrong, still hi, Derek. Uh, this one is No One Hit Wonder, five stars. This podcast has been the find of the year for me. Whoa, nice. Thank you. 
Lots of great guests with fascinating stories that could only happen in the music business. Everyone has heard the hits from these artists, but it's hearing the other songs that has me rediscovering a lot of these musicians 30 plus years later. That is exactly what I hope happens. Thank you. John goes in depth for you with their backgrounds, catalog, and history. You often hear a guest say, wow, good question. To me, that says it all. John really does his homework on each of his guests. At the end of each episode, you always know more than you did, even if it's a band you're familiar with. Thank you, CK. I assume that's Derek. Anyway, whoever you are, thank you so much for doing that. That means a lot to us. A couple uh, Facebook reviews. This one's from Andy Solemn. We know Andy. He's our friend. Been listening to this wonderful podcast for some time, and John continues to, five stars, by the way, continues to bring on interesting guests, many we all remember fondly. What makes the hustle stand out from the many other music podcasts is the angle he takes and the questions he asks. I also enjoy John's obvious enthusiasm. As a music nut and fanboy myself, John presents as one of us. I love that. And goes places that we too, as fans, would like to go. Highly recommended. Thank you, Andy. I appreciate that. Here's one from Robert Lawler. Uh, This is also five stars. Robert, I think, is a fairly new listener to us. Uh, Hi, Robert. And he always says the nicest things. Thank you, buddy. What a brilliant show. Thank you very much. I've just discovered the podcast and I'm loving it. I adore PM Dawn. That's one of my favorites too. Good. And it was a pleasure to listen to that episode too. Diving into Rupert Hine next. That's another one of our, one of our best. As Better Off Dead holds a lot of nostalgic memories for me. Thank you. The show is superbly presented. That's all Yan. And the questions are interesting and well-researched. You can tell it's done with genuine passion. Really top class. Thank you, Robert, for that. Here's one from Mary Ann Cowley. This is also five stars, representing some of the unheard female population here. (laughs) She heard my mention about it being a sausage fest. I love hearing from the ladies, and I try to get more ladies on here. I'll I'll keep trying. If you like behind-the-music stories, you will love this podcast. That's perfect, because that's kind of what I had in mind. A behind-the-music for everybody. John gets the real behind-the-scenes stories from acts you may have forgotten about. It's like running into old friends and catching up. Keep up the good work. Thank you, Marianne, for that. Uh, I think there's just one more here. Adam Foster, also five stars. Adam's great too, by the way. Quality interviews by an informed host. The guests are varied and interesting. Most are forthcoming with tidbits about their careers, which makes each episode much more interesting than the usual self-promotion type of podcasts. Highly recommended for music lovers, especially those with an interest in 70s and 80s pop. Why can't more music interview podcasts be like this? <laughs> you guys flatter me so much. Thank you so much to every nice, kind person out there that says nice, kind words to us. I am so grateful for all of you. So grateful. I it makes I feel sometimes like I go through life just floating that Yan and I get to do this and that there's people like you who care enough to say nice things and listen and validate what we think is important here. Thank you so much to every single one of you for listening and for your support. I am so grateful. We are so grateful. Anyway, let's get back to Chris. I mean, let's take let's talk about the genesis of your version of that song. How how does a song go through that transformation? Um you know, what did... At that time, I'd never heard that because uh, it was a band Mick was in called the Frantic oh. Elevators, wasn't it? I'd never even heard that version. Hmm. But when we uh, went into the recording studio, 
the first album, Picture Book, we did the first set of recordings for that in a studio in Holland. And that's when we worked with Stuart Levine for the first time. I mean, Stuart, when we would do before we'd gone to record that, Stuart Levine had come to uh, one or two sh live gigs in England, and we met Stuart then, and then we met up, up with him in Holland. And Stuart has got a a huge background in production. Yeah. And basically, we rearranged every song completely. Every song was taken apart and. Uh, reconceived basically and we worked on the rhythm sections in a big way just getting them so you know locked in and feeling good yeah and it just changed the whole way we'd been doing the songs so it's was that sort of him then that that brought this that's kind of that style to the album because i'm looking over i'm looking at his brought that maturity to to it yes that, you know, because he'd done things like, you know, Womack and Womack. He'd done Streetlight. Yeah. Sly the Family Stone, B.B. Oh. King. I'm looking at it now. There's all this he, stuff. He did. He worked with Hugh Masekela. He had his first number one in America in 1965 with Green Grass. Oh, wow. Stuart had a huge pedigree and was he was a, a sax player himself. He was, a, you know, a musician. And he'd worked with these incredible musicians in America and must have thought, like, who the fuck are these little English kids here, you know? Mm -hmm. Not can play very well, but we're going we're gonna to polish this turd sort of thing. Right, right. Uh, and so we, we re everything was rearranged. We worked on it really hard. Uh, it was the first time I've, I'd ever kind of been in the studio and worked with what was then called Simpty, which is like with a click track. Mm-hmm. So, them work you know it's like what they used in movies at the time it wasn't done a lot in studios so then you can do overdubs you can you know put sequences on it and everything like that so okay it was a huge learning curve for all of us and yeah. brought a, a level of musicianship and sophistication to the sound we were doing we weren't trying to be sophisticated we were just trying to make it sound good sure well it does money's too tight to mention comes out
we've proven that my I didn't do enough research. <laughs> my understanding was that that hit that did not take off immediately. It took a while for that song to sort of catch on. Correct? No. Uh, no again. No, Jeez. money's too tight. It did okay, actually. Maybe that, I'm thinking about the states. You're thinking about holding back the years, I think. Oh. No. It wasn't the first single, Money's Too Tight, to mention? It was never a hit in America. That's pro- I think that's what it is. I'm sort of gauging that's what I was. I mean, it was a big hit across Europe and, you know, in like Australia and places like that, Japan. But yeah. it was never a big hit in America. What was a big what, in I think it was 1986 when Holding Back the Years came sure. out or at the end of 85 even yeah. and that just got nowhere in the charts it got like top 40 top 50 or something like that and it was when it was re-released later yeah. I think for some reason it didn't get to number one in England it got to number two but in America it got to number one I remember I remember it very well I'll be honest with you I was not a Simply Red fan back then and that song used to drive me nuts. And it, it wasn't until, uh, I don't know, maybe 10 or 15 years ago that I actually sort of was like, what am I, why am I fighting this? I actually really like Simply Red. And so now I have all the albums and everything, but back when you guys were at your peak, I was, uh, I was a bit of a naysayer. But, what I, but I am curious, when you've hit this number one song in the States and things start to take off, how does your life change? It was a whirlwind, really. I mean, for six years, we recorded, rehearsed, toured relentlessly. We didn't stop. We went from one album to the next, from one tour to the next. We'd have a, we'd do six or eight weeks of touring and then have a week or two off and then we'd do another six or eight weeks of touring. And this is bearing in mind in the days when you do like, three nights on, one night off, three nights on, one night off. And that's why the, the band got so good as well, you know, because we were playing so much. Sure. It, we, you know, we were as tight as anything. It was great. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But we worked and worked and worked and we, we went round the world, you know. I mean, we went to America quite a few times and did the bus tours across the bloody country, but <laughs> it was a hard nut to crack with America. And I don't think... It, it never really happened there in America. We had the number one with Holding Back the Years. There was a number one with uh, If You Don't Know Me By Now.
that never kind of crossed over into Simply Red being a big band in America. Yeah. Why do you think that is? I, I've been trying to figure that out too, because, you know, your, your part in this band is there's two tent poles here of giant number one songs, but it's not, it still feels almost scattershot. It doesn't feel like you've established, you know, a, a foundation in the States. Um, I have to say men and women is my favorite simply red album. And that's the one that's almost a little bit forgotten about even. You know? Yeah. It's interesting you should say that because that's, I'd, I, I would guess that was probably one that, and I, I might be completely wrong here. I'm guess, I'm, I like I say, it's a guess, but I'd probably say that was one that Mick liked the least because mm. it's uh, Alex Sadkin that produced that one. Yeah, uh, I think it's so funky. I love it. And your well, playing on it is especially good. I've been listening to more. I know that's on New Flame, but... of songs that I'm listening to with a new mind because I knew I'd be talking to you so I'm paying more attention to drumming right. and percussion and stuff like that <laughs> and uh, it's amazing I love those albums yeah well the it was Alex Sadkin who did that who'd done all the Duran Duran stuff and mm. he's done Grace Jones but he brought an engineer in on that a guy called Barry Moraz who had uh, he was the engineer on all the Ohio player records? That's right. Okay. And Barry obviously had worked on those Ohio players, amazing band, you know. Yes. So funky. And Alex obviously wanted to get some kind of element of that sound into what we were doing. But I think there was a definite uh, personality clash between Mick and Sadkin. Mm. Okay. Uh, That's too bad. Yeah, it was. Anyway. Love fire. i 
That's the one I that didn't more. I was thinking of the other reggae song on Men and Women. Love Fire right. is so good, and you're so good on it. Um, but I think Do the Right Thing came out and didn't you know it didn't take off quite as well as Holding Back the Years had. Are you noticing, I mean, how are you feeling as a member of this band when you've just had a number one song and your first album sells a couple million and then the right thing comes out and it's good, but it's not taking America by storm. Do you care? Are you even noticing that? Are you too busy to even be paying attention? To be honest, I think that's something more like the management and Mick would have a concern about because we were still playing endless shows we were, the show that the, the venues we were playing where we were getting bigger you know around europe around the world perhaps not in america but uh everywhere else it was still growing so i we weren't i wasn't losing any sleep over that okay is there a moment i again going back i know mick wrote the majority of the songs but is there a moment in one of these songs or albums that you're especially proud of like I came up with this little part or my playing on this thing. I've always really liked it. You know, it's interesting that because I've heard you ask this question in some of your oh. interviews. So, and uh, I've been so busy because I thought, Jesus Christ, I'm just going to have to go back and listen to some of these bloody oh, records. No. Oh. And I've not had the time to do it. Oh, no. Well, yeah. two things. One, I feel so transparent all of a sudden. <laughs> no, it's not at all. Don't worry about that, man. You know, okay. there's only so many questions you can ask so many people, sure. isn't there? Well, I think <laughs> that's interesting, especially the, yeah, especially the guy who wasn't the, the one writing the music. I think it's like when I talked to Dave Gregory from XTC and asked him that. That's, and he, the, that's the band I'm talking about. Okay, okay. Right, the yeah. band you know, like, you know, I, I was, they were great, the XTC. Yes. Brought that first album out in England, and I was like, I loved it. You know, I didn't care much for what they did after that, mm. but, you know, it was a time of all that new wave thing after punk, and yeah. just things were changing a little bit. You know, people were trying things out and experimenting. Yeah. I just I want to, because we're going to, you know, we're going to, you know this, we're going to play a little bit of it. And so I thought, what's Chris especially proud of? that we know, some little moment or, a, you know, a song or a bit that he likes. I just find uh, that I interesting. Oh, things, something like uh, Enough off A New Flame. Ooh, nice. Like that, you know, because that was kind of like we'd been listening, or I'd been listening to quite a lot of jazz. I mean, as a band, we listened to a lot of jazz as well when we were on the tour bus.
we had something like a, a 2000 watt PA system on the bus. You know, it was like we nice. had music playing endlessly and amazing music. And the kind of the drum part for that for me came off a Miles Davis song called Silent Way. Sure. <laughs> I've never uh, pieced that together before. No, you wouldn't because it's just, but it, it was just, it, it kind of influenced me into that kind of cross stick playing the four on the drums, you know, and uh -huh. so quite like something like that, you know, if I was to choose something, uh, okay. again, I'd have to go back and listen to it again, John, because I can't but remember. <laughs> well, don't, I don't want to put you through that, but as someone who loves those albums and has been listening to them a lot lately. The, the, the cover we did for the Barry White song, It's Only Love, you know. Oh, I love that track. really funky as well we did you know the rhythm section on it is fantastic you yes. know speaking of which what was it now did you have much interaction with lamont dozier i mean he, you know this he's a legend and he's he's giving you guys his time and attention that has to say a lot it was yeah i mean i i met him a couple of times i think it ended up with him and mick having some kind of fallout about oh some, no i didn't know that it was you know but you kind of, at the time when these things are happening, you kind of take it for granted. And afterwards you think, my God, you know, who's, you know, who just works with this guy or, you know, the time when we were working with Alex Sadkin and Diana Ross came to the studio. Oh. One of the songs or, you know, there's, there's many occasions like that where, you know, at the time it's, you're in that, that, that sphere. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, um, yeah. Now to keep up with this, um, me being totally transparent, <laughs> you've probably heard me ask this question before too. Hey, did, maybe I shouldn't have listened to your program. What no, you I'm, got, I'm honored. Yeah. I'm honored that you did. Um, but I want to know if you met any heroes, you know, as Sibley Red becomes one of the biggest bands in the world, you have to be crossing paths with people whose music you respected. Did that, do you have any stories? Uh, well, I think one of the, Great, I met was a guy called Bobby Columbia. Oh, sure. Yeah. He was drummer with uh, Blood, Sweat, and Tears. Yes. <laughs> and he, you know, at the time he was doing, he was acting as an anchor on a program called Entertainment Tonight, I think it was. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You, you probably remember better that than I remember. me. You know, sure. And I think me and Mick were on there doing a, an interview. And uh, at the time, I became quite good friends with Bobby and went around to his house a couple of times. And he just played me endless jazz records and, you know, smoked grass together. And sure. just, it was amazing, you know. He'd That's come great. and pick me up at the hotel. We'd go 
back, go to a bar, go to a meal. You take me to some of these like movie launch parties and I'd meet these actresses who were famous over there who I didn't have a clue who they were. <laughs> Just amazing. Yeah. Um, speaking of which, what's your personal life like now? Are you married, kids? Yeah, I'm married. I've got a, a daughter who's uh, in her mid-30s now and she's got a couple of kids. So I've got two grandchildren who are lovely. Nice. Okay. She uh, is a DJ. She's part of a collective in Manchester called Disco Mums. Oh, interesting. Uh, yeah, she's great. Uh, really, very much into her music. Uh, her partner, her boyfriend, he's also a DJ as well. Uh, I mean, he's got his daytime job, but you know, he has a, a record label of his own and puts out records. And there's music in the family. My son. Uh, now he's just about to do some uh, what's called A-level exams in, uh, mm-hmm. and before he goes to university in September. Yeah. Uh, okay. Oh, so, you know, I'm good. I'm in a good space. Good. Um, now tell me about the Dovetails. You sent me some music from the band you're currently working with called the Dovetails. I have. Yes. What is? Tell me the story about this band. Well, this is interesting because uh, I talked to you about the guy called Elliot Rashman before. Mm-hmm. Well, one of the reasons I got back into drumming was uh, Elliot was one of the managers with Simply Red who I would say, you know, I didn't get the best treatment from them. Uh, but uh, he'd been a very good friend at the time. And then he was... Sometime down the line in the late 90s, uh, our paths crossed again, and he was suffering from very bad depression. And I helped him out. Uh, I think at the time he started managing these uh, couple of uh, women that lived nearby where I am now, uh, two women that were twins and playing in this band. And he got me into the band as the drummer. Mm. Anyway, cut a long story short, he has nothing to do with this now. The twins don't work together, but uh, one of them's called Steph, and she's the singer-songwriter. And I'm working with her and a guy called Johnny, who used to be, he used to play uh, with the Happy Mondays as well. Ooh, nice. He's the sing, sing, uh, singer-songwriting stuff as well. So we're kind of just putting some tracks together at the moment. We've been working together for about the past year, just trying to get something, you know, we don't, 
we're not chasing anything. We're just doing it purely because we want to enjoy it, and that's it. That's great. So are these songs, now you sent me a couple of them. Um, let me make sure I get the titles right. Bed of Roses and yeah. Lost You Again. Are these, um, at some point, I assume the plan is to make these available for purchase on iTunes or whatever? Exactly. So it'll be on, like, you know, just all those usual formats, you now iTunes, yeah. Spotify, you know, those sorts of things. Uh, we're just getting a website put together. And they're just, they're going to be more or less available for free to people. That's the idea. Good. Okay. When you, um, I, I, let me see if I can figure out how to ask this question the way, the way I really want to. You've been in, you've, you've jumped around, and I don't mean that in a bad way, but you've been a member or have been included in a lot of different musical projects since you left Simply Red. Yes. Now, they may have been satisfying, but nothing has quite hit, you know, the stratosphere that that band did. Few, few bands ever do. When you go into these projects, what are your expectations? Do you um, do you bring with you some hope, or uh, maybe even a little baggage, or is everything kind of a fresh start for you? There's no expectation. There's no getting to top of the pops. I know that's not a thing anymore. But are you just happy to play music with people where it's nice to be creative together, or do you you know does it? Are you bringing some hopes with you when you do these I, things? You know, it's interesting you say that. I have jumped around because in some ways, and because I'm teaching drums these days, I've got involved with different bands for different styles of music. And some of them I knew it was it was only kind of just, it's just because I wanted to play that sort of music for a bit. There's not going to be any top of the pops or anything like that. But I th some of the bands I've played with, like, that I played with the band that did Northern Soul, but we were kind of just doing cover versions. Mm. It's just because I, I wanted to get out as a musician and play live and be in front of an audience. I played with a band that was doing some country and Western music. Mm. Wow. I did some work with a band in Italy, which was like kind of dance type thing where I was doing more percussive type stuff. Dovetails, I think, is a bit different because we're kind of writing songs from scratch 
uh, I think there is some substance to them. I think there's some really good songs in there that uh, Steph and Johnny are writing. So, you know, I, in the back of my mind, I'd like to think there's maybe something could happen with it, but I'm under no illusion whatsoever. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And when you get involved with these people, I mean, they must see you as this, you know, successful veteran that can come in and kind of give them, bring some credence, maybe some respect to their project, show them the way. What do you say to these people? They or do just, you say anything? Like some old guy who comes in swearing a lot. <laughs> which is quite <laughs> <I> <laughs> Oh, I can see that. Yeah, I can imagine yeah. that. Okay. So that's it. You know, I'm very blunt and honest. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's great. Okay, so teaching drums and uh, playing with dovetails and living in the country and things are good. It sounds like anyway, things are good. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Oh, I'm glad. Yeah, I'm glad. Okay. So as you know, we wrap these up with a couple of the same questions. I want to know if you have any regrets and that business partner that screwed you over that sounds terrible but that's not exactly what i mean i mean any kind of decision that you made along the way maybe it was to cut off playing drums for so long i think um, i that yeah Go on. that's got to be it okay i thought it no, might that, be that's one of them i've probably got many others but you know we're not going to go there thank <laughs> okay. you okay. no good um, okay that'll do what's your next question well then i want to know what your favorite memory is you know if it's uh, if it's the height of Simply Red, if it's the work it took to get there, if it's the people you met along the way, if it's the stuff you do now, when you sit back and you're just thinking, I cannot believe that happened to me, tell me what that is. Um, it's all been great. You know, there's been, there's highs and lows. It's just life, John, isn't it? You know, there's, mm -hmm. you know, I, and I'm sure, you, what, what age are you? I am 45. I'm going to be 45 so when this comes out. People that you've met that are, are here today and not there now, died or whatever, you know. Yeah. So I appreciate life for what it is. I've got a lot of good friends. I have the, I have a great family. Uh, and so, you know, it's the shit happens, doesn't it? That's the mm -hmm. saying, shit happens. So it's not, it's not that the shit happens, it's how you recover. It's getting on, it's picking yourself up. And so I try to have that philosophy. When I teach my students, you say, I tell them it doesn't matter when you make a mistake. Nobody gives a fuck. It's you carry on. It's how you pick yourself up. You don't stop. Yeah. So, you know, that's kind of where I come from. As for what you're asking about a, a memory, one of my funniest probably uh, memories is spending a night getting drunk and stoned with Jack Nicholson. What? <laughs> what? How did that happen? It, it was, we played a show at uh, the Roxy in Los Angeles and Jack was at the show with uh, Deborah Winger and, mm -hmm. oh, who's, Harry Dean Stanton. Mm -hmm. And uh, during the show, da Jack is at the back dancing on the tables and loving it. And after the show, we've got, uh, there's the Roxy, there's a bar above it called On the Rocks. Which I think these days I would think I think Johnny Depp owns it or something like that. I'm not sure. Okay. I'm okay. not sure if it even exists still. But anyway, we got invited uh, to meet Jack afterwards. So we go upstairs and it's like this private club. You know, it's like anything goes in there. Right. And right. So you know, we were, I was 
sat with Harry Dean Stanton at the bar getting drunk and, you know, Deborah Winger's there and Jack Nicholson saying, you know, I play your music to the executives in my car when I'm driving them around, you know. And what? It was amazing. It was amazing. It was, you know, when you watch those movies and think, I've spent the fucking evening with this guy getting drunk and, you know. That's so crazy. So that was a, that's a good memory. But wow. I've, you know, I've done it as this, the time I've met funny, you know, in the hotels in England where we met footballers late on at night and got really drunk with them sometimes and, you know, Midjor once in Germany as well. Uh, I love Midjor so much. You know, yeah. I'm sure he'll never remember who I was, but, uh, you know, I remember the night with him as well. So, oh, you know, it's funny. It's funny. Um, you know what I just realized I meant to ask you, and this maybe this is an obvious no, but does there, I would imagine there might be promoters or somebody willing to throw a little money at sort of an original Simply Red reunion. Does that ever get discussed? Is there any possibility that that would even happen? Or is Mick just so kind of, that's so far in his rear view mirror that he would, there's no need for him to ever do that. I think it's so far in here, his rear view mirror. There's no fucking chance. Mm, okay. No chance. Yeah. You know, he, he wouldn't be wanting to be in the same room as those people, I don't think. And you, I assume you haven't seen him for a long time. No, I haven't. No. Okay. Okay. No. No, I saw Fritz uh, a couple of years ago. Uh, I was in Florida, and Fr Fritz actually lives out there now in Florida, and he's he plays in a couple of churches. Oh, he's really? Minister now in a couple of churches, and he's gone away from the whole rock and roll world lifestyle into this, you know, because he was brought up in the church. His father was a minister as well, hmm. uh, and he travelled. I think, you know, from various places when he was a kid, ended up in England, ended up in Birmingham. Uh, but his father had obviously spent a lot of time out in America and Fritz ended up back there. And his mother lived there. Uh, so it's, it's, it's really <laughs> lovely to see Fritz because we got on so well, you know, at the time. That's good. Uh, last year I had my 60th birthday party and as a surprise, it was a surprise party that my wife threw. And it was like, because one of the things that I saw about your shows where you describe it as a cross between this is your life and where are they now? Mm -hmm. and I thought that was pretty amusing, but this party of mine was a bit like, this is your life. Uh, anyway, Tim <laughs> came to the party. Oh, really? Oh, good. Yeah. So it was lovely to see Tim as well. And he does a lot of production work now. Okay. Uh, I have to admit, it's it seems strange. I mean, it's uh, what am I saying? I mean, I've I've had jobs where you know you work closely with someone for a few years and you think you're going to be friends forever, and you meet up for dinner for you know monthly or so for the first few months, and then lives get crazy and you never see them again. But you think you're going to, and for whatever yeah. reason, as an outsider, it just seems like members of a band would be friends forever. You know, Facebook buddies and Christmas cards and children's weddings and stuff like that. But I guess it just doesn't always work that way. I wish it did. I yeah. wish it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, uh, Chris, thanks for talking to me. I had a feeling you would have a, a good story and I, I'm so glad I was right. And I'm really grateful that you talked to me and that you've put such good music out in the world 
and uh, hopefully we can remind some people of some of the stuff you've been involved in uh, right. through this episode. Okay, well, thank you, and thank you for asking me to do this. I'm so I'm so honored that you even cared or listened. It's a huge... I, I'm more honored than you, John. Well, thank you for saying that. There you have it, Chris Joyce. Wasn't he great? I'm so glad we were able to showcase him specifically. I think he's wonderful. And regular listeners, don't you think it's kind of fun when... The, when uh, names of other previous guests of ours get name dropped in these conversations. You know, you hear Frankie goes to Hollywood, or you hear Terrence Trent Darby, and you think, "Man, I just heard from that band recently." I love stuff like that. I love that we're kind of in there connecting these dots. I think it's a lot of fun. Uh, one thing I wanted to mention: there was kind of some weird uh, sound effects going on in the background. It sounded like somebody was like mouth breathing into the microphone. You know what I think that was? I realized afterwards that I had forgotten to turn off the ceiling fan in the room that I was in because it was really hot. And I think that's why that's there. So uh, yes, I know better than to just stand over and mouth breathe into the microphone. And so I didn't do that and I wanted to just clarify for everybody. <laughs> anyway, we're gonna end it here with maybe my favorite Simply Red song, it's called Infidelity. Such a good track off that second album, Men and Women. Now for the next few weeks, we are coming back to the States very specifically and uniquely American artists for the next few weeks. Um, I've been hanging on to some of these for months and I haven't been able to put them out because we've had, you know, so-and-so's putting out a new album or a string of British artists or whatever. So I'm very excited to finally, finally get some of these out there. They're good ones. So that's what we're going to be focusing on the next few weeks. Um, I do have an interview with a British music person who is not a musician that I am really excited about. I may tack that on next week. Probably not. I don't know for sure. So anyway, I like to always kind of tease you guys, but I, there's a chance I could change my mind on this one. Uh, you guys know the drill by now. You can find us on Facebook. You can like the page. You can stay in communication with us on there, or you can send us an email at thehustlepod at gmail.com or find us on Twitter at thehustlepod. We put out new episodes every Tuesday. We should have a, Brit, a bonus one coming up this week. Andy Shawl contributed to our podcast and joined us for the recap episode. That should be coming out in a few days. Um, huge thanks, as always, to my right-hand man, Jan the Man Makiewicz, for making this happen with us. Thanks, everybody. We'll see you later.